0: You are listening to The Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you by thecourtleader.net in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. The coronavirus has created a crisis in America's jails and prisons. Many of these facilities have become COVID hotspots. Although sometimes overlooked, the pandemic also poses an enormous risk for juveniles who are detained. Yet it's surprising to learn that, according to the Annie E. Casey Foundation, there were actually more young people in detention in December of last year than in April when the pandemic was new. And a greater proportion of those young people were Black and Latino. To investigate this alarming situation, Drexel University, And the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges have come together in a new project that will research juvenile risk assessment, risk reduction, and judicial decision making during the pandemic, develop a research based plan to safely lower the number of young people confined in juvenile facilities, and use that plan to motivate decision makers to safely reduce the number of confinements and therefore help manage the virus. I'm Pete Kiefer, and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. This month, we're going to explore the effects of bias, of COVID, and the need for supports for young people caught up in our juvenile justice system. We'll discover what experts are doing to address these issues. How can we benefit from the research these experts are conducting on judicial detention and placement decisions in the time of COVID? How will this project change juvenile justice, both during and after COVID? And what can we learn from their work? So let's join our panel. I'm joined today by the Honorable Gail Branham Carr, Judge of the Juvenile and Domestic Relations District Court in Fairfax County, Virginia, Dr. Naomi Goldstein, Professor of Psychology and Co Director of the Law and Psychology Program at Drexel University, and Bob Birmingham. Director of the Court Services Unit at the Fairfax County Juvenile and Domestic Relations District Court. Thank you all for joining today's podcast. To start off, I'd like to get an idea of the challenge we face regarding juvenile detention and placement decisions. Can you describe ways the juvenile justice system has changed because of the pandemic? Dr. Goldstein?
1: In terms of juvenile detention and placement decisions, this is something that differs fairly dramatically across the country and across jurisdictions and even within individual counties and how different legal decision makers, so judges, probation officers, make decisions about detention or placement. And it's different in lots of places based both on process, on policies and laws and various regulations as well as just individual decision makers approaches to to addressing these issues. So we saw that before the pandemic and then with the pandemic, I think we've seen even greater differences over time um, and across places because, especially back in March and April, nobody had much guidance on how to deal with this. And so, everybody was just trying to make it work many places were working hard to release youth to keep them safe but also trying to figure out what do they do to keep communities safe in case uh, youth might present a danger so really early on there were really individual approaches to dealing with this and as we've gone through the pandemic we still see a huge range in decision making approaches but what we've been trying to do is think about how can we come up with a more consistent research guided approach to doing that
2: Judge Carr, what do you think? One of the most critical decisions that a judge makes is to whether to detain a juvenile. That, that's a critical decision. And so that decision was compounded by the impact of COVID. So it was about almost a year ago that we had to reduce our caseload and only hear what we called exigent matters, emergency matters. And so we decided we could only hear detention hearings for juveniles to determine if they should be placed in detention or not. Um, And so we had that issue with the understanding that they would be placed in detention if that decision was made and possibly run the risk of contracting COVID. Because as we know, congregate settings, there's a, a possibility of transmitting diseases because of the close proximity. So a judge not only has to decide, is there enough reason to keep this juvenile in detention, but now we have this added factor of if I do, they could be in there and contract COVID. They could be in there a very long time because the other impact of COVID is we were only hearing emergency matters. We weren't hearing trials. We weren't hearing dispositions. So that meant that that juvenile was likely to remain in detention longer than normal. In Virginia, you have to have a hearing within 21 days if you keep a child in detention. Well, that wasn't going to happen during COVID. So it just put more pressure on judges to make the best decision about whether or not that youth met the criteria for being placed in detention, because now the ramifications are even greater. And there's already enough ramifications if you place a child in detention, who one shouldn't be there or could be exposed to more egregious offenders, if you will. So it has impacted our decision-making in many ways, and it's a critical decision, whatever the situation is, as to whether we detain a juvenile.
0: Judge Carr, before COVID, what factors were top of mind for you in making a decision to detain or place a juvenile? And how did COVID change those factors?
2: Well, the top factors are one, the seriousness of the current alleged offense, what's brought this juvenile before the court, the history of uh, the juvenile, do they have other uh, adjudications, other convictions? A big factor is whether there is violence. That's a big factor, whether or not um, it's a felony or a misdemeanor, is it a property offense? And most importantly, is there an issue of weapons or guns? Plus, is, can we supervise this juvenile in the community? And the overriding concern, which all of those factors address, is the safety of the community. Since COVID, those factors remain. They haven't changed, it's just we have that extra issue, as I just discussed, of if I keep that child in detention, there may be a, a risk of being quarantined, being isolated because of COVID. So the factors are the same, after COVID is just we have an added decision maker that we have to consider. And I would add the defense bar is fighting really, really hard. They're advocating very strongly for everyone to be placed in the community, even though the seriousness of the fence may warrant being placed in detention. So there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure on that decision making, which is why it's important that even before COVID and now we rely on screening instruments. I think we're going to talk about a little bit about that later, but that helps aid in the decision making. Dr.
0: Goldstein, this project has implications beyond COVID. Describe for us, if you will, the research, the project, and the objectives.
1: So this project actually came as an idea from the William T. Grant Foundation, who's really invested in protecting the the well-being of vulnerable youth. And so this came as a rapid response research project, which is really about integrating research with applied expertise to promote informed, empirically based decision-making to protect kids and particularly during this very challenging and unprecedented time. And so the way this project worked was it was a partnership between my juvenile justice research and reform lab at Drexel and the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges, who were really on the ground working with judges and decision makers across the country to help support those decision makers in kind of taking a different and new approach or an enhanced approach to their decision making about detention and placement in the time of COVID. So historically... You know, Judge Carr, I think, did a really clear job of identifying what are the clear factors that a judge or a probation officer has to consider in a detention or placement decision. And for many judges though, there has always been a sense of right, the risk is often in release considered to be in releasing a youth. Because if you release a youth, they could present a danger. If you hold a youth, They certainly can be, can have negative impacts on themselves, potentially long-term, we know that there's negative impacts on a kid being held, but in the short term, it's certainly safer for the community to hold the youth. In the times of COVID, that sort of balance between danger to the youth and danger to the community really changed. It's a different weight that we know that the decision to hold a kid in detention or in post-adjudication placement could have really immediate Life-threatening consequences. If they can track COVID, if they give it to if staff get it, if staff bring it into the community. So there's really a wide range of short-term health consequences to holding a kid during this time of COVID. And so what we've tried to do with the research is to integrate that with what we're hearing from the practitioners and decision makers about how do we rethink some of this decision? How do we take things that we know from research about what are really imp- important predictors in predicting violence? And how do we think about when those predictors are present or absent? How do we think about ways where, and it's usually not a yes or no decision, right? It's not that yes, this person's going to go out and commit another offense um, or commit a violent offense. It's that It's all a question of probabilities. And the question becomes how do you think about risk assessment information that we know about a youth? How do we think about the services that exist in those communities to address risk, right? If a kid has needs, if a kid is using substances and that's a situation where they may present a danger, are there ways that there are sufficient services, mental health services, drug treatment services, family supports? in the community that may be able to be put in place to substantially reduce that risk so that a judge can feel like they can reduce that youth and not and therefore spare that youth the potential health consequences of being held and still keep the community safe so we're really trying to transform some of that discussion and thinking to think about with this new balance between health risk and community safety how do how can judges think about the value and impact of services to reduce risk in a different kind of way.
0: Bob Birmingham, how do you see this project potentially affecting juvenile courts nationally?
3: I think it's, uh, first of all, I wanna thank you, Peter and Dr. Goldstein for bringing attention to juvenile matters and detention. Typically, you hear all about the adult systems and the problems we're having here and not a whole bunch of attention is paid to the juvenile uh, world. So thank you for, for this opportunity. I think this is an exciting project. I think there's a lot of work that still needs to be done nationally to develop a cohesive policy and practice around the utilization of detention and the purpose and intent of of detention and who makes those decisions. Dr. Goldstein earlier referred to multiple people in in one area can make decisions about detention. It could be a law enforcement officer on the street. It could be a juvenile probation officer. Uh, It could be a judge, a prosecutor all with different roles and responsibilities in the process, but without any common philosophy or practice around what's the appropriate usage of detention. Here in Fairfax, you know, we've made a stern commitment to its kids that have scored high on, on the risk assessment that we use and pose a substantial threat to the community. There was a time here where we looked at both that and the risk level or and the needs level, right? And so you could have a low-risk offender with high needs. And we we at one point had a full detention center, 121 beds and we had 121 kids in there. Today, uh, as we did before COVID, we have 19 kids in there. We review their standing in our detention center every week internally. And I can tell you with full confidence that every child in there is is moderate high or high risk uh, and a threat to the community. And so in a population of 1.2 million people, that's pretty amazing to have that low population uh, in there. So uh, my hope is that we we develop some universal guidance uh, based on science and research and best practices uh, that can guide court systems, judges, probation departments on the utilization of the proper utilization of detention.
0: Judge Carr, drawing on your experience as a judge, can you relate how this project might have benefited young people who have appeared before you?
2: Oh, absolutely. I think Dr. Goldstein said it best. What information can I receive to make an informed decision as I weigh these issues of placement in detention versus placement in the community? And what a judge is looking for is, what are the risks? Because there's risk in everything. We can't eliminate the risk, But if we can substantially reduce the risk, then a judge is more likely to to make a decision. So an example would be: I have a child before me who's committed a felony offense, but it's not violent. There's no violence involved. It's a property offense, but it's egregious. It's pretty serious. They might meet the criteria for detention, but now that we have COVID, this child's going to be detained for a substantial period of time on a property offense. So then this project can help me look at okay as dr goldstein said what other supports does this child have what community supports are available what are the strengths of the family what are the alternatives to placement in detention where the child might have no possibility of committing a further offense but could contract COVID? so it helps us guide the decision making and judges we love to get as much guidance as we can uh to make decisions particularly as i mentioned at such a critical part of the proceeding we want to make the decision that is in the best interest of the community public safety but also because this is a child this is not an adult we have to look at their developmental needs we know we know they're not fully developed we know that children make silly mistakes they do things that we wouldn't think of doing now as adults. So that's a part of the developmental process. So looking at, is this a clear need that I need to detain this juvenile, or is there community supports that allows me to safely place him or her in the community and keep keep the community safe and keep the juvenile from uh, committing other offenses?
0: There've been other projects regarding juvenile detention and placement. For example, we already mentioned the work of the Annie E. Casey Foundation. How is this project different? Dr. Goldstein?
1: There's been tremendous effort over the last five to 10 years by the Annie Casey Foundation and many other foundations, individual jurisdictions, states, to try to reduce the number of youth in detention and placement. And and we've seen in some places tremendous success with this this is really focused on something a little bit different. And and actually, let me back up for one second. When we talk about the the existing strategies to reduce detention and placement, those are from many different approaches. So some of that is around changes into the judicial decision making. Some of that is changes in the way probation officers supervise youth and trying to introduce what we know about Positive youth development and engagement in community based activities on long term positive outcomes for kids. Some of it is about shifting from using sort of a sanctions based system to thinking about a more incentive based system for kids, which we know is more consistent in motivating their behavior from a developmental perspective. So there's been a huge number of efforts by lots of people in the system, Um, also including, I didn't mention it, including police officers in terms of strategies to reduce the rates of arrest among this population and to use pre-arrest diversion programming in schools, for example. So there's a huge number of efforts to do this. This is something that's quite distinct and is really focused again on this, on these very specific decisions, this very specific decision point about detaining or placing youth in post-adjudication facilities. And so, or, I guess, in addition, also talking about releasing youth from those facilities, if they're already there. So it's real, this is a very unique decision point, And that's what this project is focused on. I want to just comment on a couple of things that I think were related to things Judge Carr said, just to sort of make sure people are aware of a few pieces, especially related to risk assessment tools. So I think one of the important things to realize is at this point, most jurisdictions, especially in their adjudication decisions and their placement decisions, use some sort of risk assessment tool. I think that there's a lot of assumptions by the public, often by some people in the system even, that these risk assessment tools give a specific sort of prediction about future violent offending, and they don't. In fact, most of these risk assessment tools may talk about rearrest in the future for any kind of offense, not limited to violent offending. They may, you know, they may talk about specific, sort of specific timeframes, like only in the next six months or the next year. So there's a lot of discretion that the judge has and a lot of, a lot of sort of their own ex- expertise that they have to bring into this process. And I know as Judge Carr talked about, People, judges are often looking for guidance on this and trying to make the most informed decisions they can. So the way that this project differs is we're, we really synthesized virtually every piece of research that has ever been done on what we know about risk assessment tools and their ability to predict violent and other types of behavior, information about risk communication. So how do people hear information about risk assessment tools? A risk assessment data and then use that in their decision making differences between the way these instruments and data are supposed to be used and the way they're actually used in practice we looked at bias that's built into these tools and into potentially in disparities in decision making so really we tried to integrate all of this into Sort of a systematic decision-making process that judges can use and other legal decision makers can use when making decisions about the detention and placement decisions.
0: So let's discuss the risk assessment instrument the court uses. Who developed it? How does it eliminate bias? And how are staff trained to use it? Bob? Certainly. So we do use a a
3: detention assessment instrument at, at the juvenile intake level. So here in Virginia, juvenile intake officers who are also labeled probation officers are given a legal authority to make determination on probable cause when complaints are filed and then the determination of diversion and or uh, formal court processing as well as placement into detention. And so that's kind of unique from a lot of other jurisdictions where prosecutors make that decision, but we, we have our staff that make that. Uh, we use the detention assessment instrument that was developed by the Virginia Department of Juvenile Justice and was validated by local universities. Uh, our staff is trained by the Department of Juvenile Justice and ongoing training for us as we, as we move forward on this. You know, that I would be silly to sit here and suggest that there is no bias involved in the assessment and screening tools. We're not there yet as, a, as an industry. <laughs> I hope we get there one day. But I can tell you with a lot of confidence that the usage of that that assessment or screening tool is one a guide for professional decision making it's not the end all be all it's a method of helping us reach decisions and then eventually recommendations to Judge Carr or her colleagues on the bench I can also tell you that I've been in this for 34 years there was a point in time where we had no risk or screening tools and it was just whatever I thought whatever my lens was however I was feeling that day Whoever the police officer was in front of me, how frustrating I was with that kid, how disrespectful he may would have been, detention orders were flying out the window, and that's when we saw our facility, particularly here in, in Fairfax, grow greatly. And so we've done a lot of work and training. It's training of the staff as well, right? So the tool is the tool. Uh, it's not just telling people how do you fill out the tool. It's what making sure that they're aware of their own biases. And so all of our court staff, including our intake officers have to go through mandatory bias training throughout the year during orientation coming in, and then uh, we provide it throughout the year. Uh, we have a, a racial and ethnic disparities team that looks at the data. Uh, data's huge here. Uh, you don't know where you're going if you don't see the data. So when we look at overrides in, in risk assessments or deviations from what those numbers are telling us, it's it, we can find that in data. We review that. We dig down in that and say, okay, why is this happening? Why? This month, did we override more uh, detention assessment results than we did the month before? Is it the individual intake officer? Is it a policy or procedure that's driving that? Is it a perception that somebody had that's not accurate? So it's a combination of using a tool because we never used one before, understanding that there is bias in there, understanding that we need to be trained to be aware of our own biases, that there's checks and balances in the process and that we look at, at the data. And as I looked at our screening and assessment tool today, and because we're looking at talking about COVID, you know, one of the issues that COVID has impacted was kids with one of the questions in the screening estimates about kids that have pending court matters. And because the court has been all but shuttered for a lot, for, for almost a year now, there are a lot of pending court matters out there that traditionally would have been resolved and would not have been included in this screening instrument. So that, you know, COVID is definitely from that standpoint had an impact on our screening and, and assessment tools that we use at intake
0: judge carr
2: well as bob said uh they're guides for us and i, I just want to echo what he said because bob used to be a probation officer in, in front of me and sometimes he'd say judge we need to teach this kid a lesson that's not the appropriate criteria for placing a child in detention but prior to evidence based screening instruments and evidence based courts that's often what the decision was about that gut reaction that gut feeling and even it could be what we call a technical violation the child did not report to the probation officer so the benefit of using evidence based practices and instruments is that it helps guide the decision as i've said to make an informed decision i just want to mention it is not a situation where if the screening instrument says detain that i have to detain in virginia i don't have i can look at it i can review it it's a guide i'm not required to follow it but it does help us stay true to the criteria that is important in making the decision to detain or not it looks at the serious nature of the offense is it a violent offense what are the prior uh, adjudications, what's the prior history? So the, the screening instruments, and the the Jdi is the one that we use here in Virginia, as Bob mentioned, it keeps us true to the fidelity of what we're supposed to be looking at. And then others can fill in other factors. Hopefully I have a, a defense attorney, I can hear from mom or dad, I can hear from probation, and then I can have a toolbox, if you will, of information so that I can make an informed decision but we do use screening instruments from A to Z. From the time you come to the courthouse to the time you exit, we are using evidence-based practices to help guide our decisions. It keeps us true to the fidelity, as I mentioned, of what we should be looking at. It helps us make informed decisions, but they're not required that I follow that instrument. It's just a guide.
3: I would just like to say that I have grown up quite a bit since I was a probation officer, and you may be wondering, (laughs) how did you get to be the court service, the chief probation officer? Times have changed, just for the record.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All of you have mentioned that bias still exists in the risk assessment instruments and in the decision-making process. What's being done to reduce or eliminate that bias, and what can be done that we're not currently doing? Judge Carr,
2: Well, I want to answer it this way. What can be done? What can be done is to make sure um, that our courts, that our attorneys, that our probation officers, that our service providers, that our prosecutors are diverse and reflect the diversity of the community. That is the most important way that we can reduce the bias that we I believe all have agreed, uh, is not eliminated in screening instruments, maybe they will be in the future. But it's important that the probation office, judges, prosecutors, the attorney for the youth, that all of those entities that touch that juvenile justice system, that it reflects the community that it serves in terms of diversity and ethnicity, coupled with the importance of regular and ongoing education on and training on cultural competencies, implicit bias, and other sensitivity training. That ought to be part and parcel of every community, every juvenile court system, and not just in the court, but also our service providers. That's one way that we can uh, reduce the bias that we agree is, is inherent in Screening instruments Bob, how about you i
3: I' just piggyback on what judge Carr said. I completely agree with what she said. we got you know we're given the instruments that we are we have to use, and uh, we need to make sure we're using them with fidelity that we're trained appropriately, that we're checking the data and that we're working equitably across the system the best way we can I, I just always want to remind folks that judge Carr doesn't go out looking for people, and neither do I people come to us. And so the, the disparities or the bias starts well before they knock, they cross the, the door at the courthouse. Um, and so we know, for in fact, that kids of color have a, a three times greater chance of being arrested for a similar offense a white uh, individual wouldn't be. 85% of the violent felony cases that are brought to our attention are kids of color. So as we have our first touch with them in the system, we're already dealing with bias that exists. Not just in law enforcement, but in education, housing, other social determinants as well.
2: And, and can Goldstein? I just add one more thing? I'm sorry, Peter. Sure. People of color are likely to receive harsher enforcement and punishment than their peers who are not of color. That's the other part, and that's why the instrument and the overrides is so important. Dr. Goldstein. I think that actually is a
1: is a great segue into what I was going to suggest in terms of what the research tells us are ways to address bias or sort of inferences we can make from from research findings. And that is at every decision point, whether that's from initial police contact through judicial decisions to really question what is the bias built into this? What are the risk factors that contribute to disparities? Certainly to, I think, as Bob mentioned, kind of avoid overrides in the, based on certainly if detention or placement is not recommended by tools, really try to avoid holding more kids than you should be because we know from research that's gonna be disproportionately youth of color that are held. Um, when it feels like it's absolutely necessary, to override and hold someone to be really explicit about the reasons why. And I think that's something that is not usually done. There is often very little documentation of reasons why you would hold when that may not be recommended, especially at the post adjudication phase in terms of placement. And so that's one way to really have people think a little bit extra about the potential for building and bias and also to be able to look out back at the data and try to figure out why people are being held and are there additional supports, training, something necessary to try to overcome that. And then I would also say related to something I mentioned earlier about the disparities that we know exist in access to community services, to really try to transfer some of the burden to adults in the system. So what I mean by that is historically, there's often been a lot of burden placed on kids to say, you need to prove to us that you're not a risk. You need to make us comfortable that we can safely release you into the community. And what this says is especially during times of COVID, but hopefully long after, is to address this bias is really shifting the burden to the system and the adults in the system to say, It's not a good enough reason to say let's hold a a kid because there are no adequate services in their community. Let's be creative and figure out what those services are. And I think COVID has really, this period during COVID has really opened all of our eyes to the extent to which it's not business as usual. That suddenly there's access to telehealth services. Suddenly there are families involved in probation supervision and court hearings via video that there are other ways of incorporating people into into supporting this youth and providing them with the services they need in the community to safely address needs and reduce risk.
0: What advice do you have for juvenile justice systems around the country?
2: Judge Carr? Use evidence-based screening instruments from A to Z, from the moment the child walks into the court system until they exit. Use your data. Data, data, data. That helps you understand what's happening, what kids are at a higher risk. It helps you understand, are you making the appropriate decision to only detain youth who are a risk to public safety? Use detention alternatives and diversion. Uh, Lobby your communities to provide you with more resources so you don't have to fall into, into that default position. Well, I've got to put this kid in detention because I don't have any other options. And then last is to address the elephant in the room. We, we've talked about the bias that is in the screening instruments. We know that bias exists in our justice system in this country, in this world. So address it. Uh, make sure that, that you have a cultural sensitivity training, that you have adequate Uh, amounts of diversity, cultural competency, and make sure that you're training, training, and training, and training, and training, and teaching every aspect of the court system so that you can reduce um, the bias, you can reduce injustice, address implicit bias. Those are are my recommendations. Dr. Goldstein?
1: I would agree with all of the ones Judge Carr suggested. Um, I would also add to that by saying Question what you've always done. I think there's a lot of assumptions that this is the way the system works. This is the way we should continue it. Even as we think about system enhancement and transformation efforts, often those are really small changes from what we've, incremental changes from what's been done before. And this period of COVID allows us to really question everything that's been done or so much of what's been done before and to think about, are there other ways to do it? I would also say be creative. Again, this idea that historically, most of the decisions have have really come down to risk and needs of a kid, but really focusing on what are those in that decision about release, focusing on how can we generate services and supports to address needs and safely reduce risk. Um, And I think viewing that risk, not just as a dynamic, issue where the risk level goes up and down based on needs, but also that the decision to detain or place kids should also be a dynamic decision. So what I mean by that is if somebody, if a judge or a probation officer or other decision maker says it's not currently safe to release this kid, to really think, because we, especially because we don't have services in the community, to think about We may not have those services today, but can we get those services in place in three days? Do we really need to hold this kid six months till a a certain review hearing, or can we figure out how to get appropriate services to safely release them tomorrow? And to make this an ongoing decision for all of those kids that are held. And lastly, I think again, coming back to Judge Carr's comment on looking at your data, this is gonna be critical as we think about what are the implications of this natural experiment of sort of mass release of kids from detention and placement facilities back in March and April. Was it safe to release them? Are we seeing negative impacts of it, or are we actually seeing positive outcomes? And if so, what can we learn about that and carry with us into hopefully what's to come as a post-pandemic phase?
0: Bob, what's your advice?
3: (laughs) I don't know how to build on both of those presentations. They kind of took up everything. I guess my final uh, situation here that I would say is, is follow the science. And I know science is a buzzword right now, particularly around COVID. But where we were able to see change, at least in our justice system here in Fairfax, is when we were able to merge the law, science, research, and best practices. Look, there's no more confusion any longer as to why kids get involved in the criminal justice system. There's no more confusion around who needs to be detained and who doesn't. There's no more confusion around the impact of of trauma on kids' lives. There's no more um, confusion around do we engage families or not? Are we worried about biases or not? Uh, You know, to me, the research is there. Uh, The best practices are there. The data to support them are there. How do we spread that throughout a country where, as, as Dr. Goldstein said, a lot of jurisdictions are still working like, hey, I know best. This is what we did. And I think this is the way it goes. And so, you know, encouraging judges, court leaders, administrators, probation officers to look at the science, look at the research, look at the best practices, have conversations like this where you have practitioners and academics and others sitting down and and talking through these things. I'm writing notes down right now, talking, listening to Dr. Goldstein um, that I can bring. I'll bring downstairs to my intake department on my way out tonight. But anyhow, it, it's really to me, it's it's merging of all of that together and, and just remembering, you know, kids, their kids. And and adolescent brain development is part of the science. It's, it's driven Supreme Court rulings. It should be driving what we do and try to move away from the 1990s when we had the super predator scare and get tough on crime and lock everybody up. It didn't work then. And we now know that well, we can do it differently. So that's my advice on top of what Dr. Goldstein and Judge Carr provided.
0: Dr. Goldstein, where can folks get more information on the research and the project?
1: A couple of places. They can go to my jjrrlab.com website, which is my lab website for the Juvenile Justice Research and Reform Lab. And they can also go to NCJFCJ, so the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges website which will have resources, training opportunities. There are several conferences coming up where this will be presented and that information will um, be available on their website.
0: My thanks to the Honorable Gail Carr, Dr. Naomi Goldstein, and Bob Birmingham for sharing their work on this much-needed project to help at-risk young people in facilities during COVID. Clearly, this is a critical effort. As always, my thanks to you, court professionals, tuning in to today's podcast. This episode illustrates that COVID is devastating to our most vulnerable. And it's you, court professionals, who are making the difference. Thanks for all you do. Join us in April for another discussion of issues about courts and court administration. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leader's Advantage is a regular podcast on courts and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, on YouTube, on Facebook, on iTunes, on Instagram, and on Twitter. Become part of the conversation. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nacumnet.org. Did you hear an interesting comment by one of the panelists that you'd like to listen to again but you don't want to search the entire episode to find it the additional resources section on the web page contains a question time marker sheet just find the discussion question on the sheet and next to it is the time that question was asked you can then quickly fast forward to that time in the episode and listen to the panelists comments remember if you don't have time to watch an episode you can always listen to the audio version. Listen in your car or on the bus on your way to and from work. You never have to miss an episode. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests, the Court Leader website, and the National Association for Court Management, thanks for watching. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the host and the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.